You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, in John chapter 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples. Jesus knows that he's about ready to head to the cross and that after his death, of course, he will rise from the grave and appear to his disciples, dwell with them for a short period of time, and then eventually he'll ascend to the right hand of the Father. And in his ascension, of course, he would be leaving his disciples with the work, the responsibility, the opportunity to preach the gospel, to see the word of God spread throughout the world. And so in John 14, 15, 16, and 17, we see preparatory words from Christ to his disciples. And then in the 17th chapter, a prayer from the Lord to the Father. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples. He comforted them in chapter 14. He began to promise them the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14. He prepped them on what a relationship with him would look like at the beginning of chapter 15, the vine and the branches. He prepared them for the hatred and the persecution of the world, explaining to them where it was coming from, what it was rooted in, what the Spirit of God would do to help them navigate those difficult waters and for them to understand about themselves that it wasn't personal, but that it had happened to Christ first and they were receiving it only as an extension of the hatred of the world towards Christ initially. But after hearing all of these things, I think the disciples would have some questions in their minds. You know, what do you mean that you're going to leave us? And what do you mean that it's going to be difficult like this? This isn't the thing that we originally signed up for. And so Jesus begins to speak to his disciples and his men about some things that they were not ready to receive previously in the ministry. You know, on the day that Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and saw Peter and Andrew or James and John and called them to be his disciples and to follow him and that he would make them into fishers of men, there was no way that Jesus could explain all of the details that he's about to explain to his disciples. And so he had to wait for this particular moment. That's why he says, at the end of verse 4, where we pick it up today. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, this is interesting. Jesus, first of all, says to them, you know, none of you asks me, where are you going? Thomas had asked something close to that or said something close to that when he said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going, so how can we know the way? But Peter seems like he actually did ask this question way back in chapter 13, verse 36, when he looked at Jesus and said, Lord, where are you going? Now, here Jesus says, none of you asks me, where are you going? And I think that the question is answered by simply thinking about what Peter was actually asking way back in that 13th chapter. You know, I'm a father with three daughters, and sometimes when I'm going to work, 
or leaving for a meeting or going to a conference or going on a missions trip, my daughters, as I'm at the door, will ask me the question, Daddy, where are you going? And sometimes that's exactly what they want to know. They want to know the location. They want to know what I'll be doing. They are actually concerned with that part of things. But quite often, when they ask me that question, they're not really asking me where I'm going. They're asking me, why do you have to leave? And I think at this point, that's what the disciples were really, truly asking. Why do you have to leave? We have a good thing going here. It's been wonderful following you and walking with you. And they were, of course, anticipating that he would establish his rule and reign and that they would rule with him. And so Jesus is able to, I think, then say, none of you asks me, where are you going? In other words, none of you is really asking, where are you going? But because I've said to you that I'm leaving, he says in verse 6, sorrow has filled your heart. They were growing depressed over the reality of Jesus's departure. And so sorrow had filled their heart. But Jesus then encourages them with a few simple truths in the rest of this chapter. First of all, in verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So he looks at these disciples and he says, Listen, if I don't depart, then the helper cannot come and help you here in this life. I have to leave in order for him to be sent. So, verse 7, he says, it's to your advantage that I depart. Now, of course, at that moment, as those disciples heard Jesus saying these things, it would have been so difficult for them to agree with his words. But here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and it's rather easy for us to agree with the words of Christ. Because we're on this side of the cross and this side of the ascension, this side of the pouring out of God's Spirit. And wherever we are, we are probably miles from where Jesus spoke these words. They're near Jerusalem. And we understand that in that era, Jesus' ministry was a completely localized kind of ministry. And that when he ascended and poured out his spirit, his ministry began to have a worldwide flavor attached to it. So that one person on one continent is able to receive the ministry of the spirit, is able to be helped by the Holy Spirit, be spoken to by the Holy Spirit of God. And at the same time, a group of people on another continent at the exact same time are able to also receive ministry from the Holy Spirit. This is something that in Jesus' earthly body, he was unable to do. He was limited to one time and one place. So we live in a wonderful and better age. An age where he is able to comprehensively minister to all of his children and not just in a localized kind of sense. Now, Ephesians 1 verse 13 teaches us, of course, that when we give our lives to Christ, we receive the Spirit of God within us. And sometimes because of the commonality of the Holy Spirit, 
we despise the Holy Spirit or we undervalue the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives. And we ought not do this. Jesus looks at these men and says, listen, men, an advantageous, better day is coming. It's the day that I pour out my spirit. I give the spirit, the helper to you. And I've found personally that the Holy Spirit, although Jesus here is obviously mostly probably speaking of the comprehensive nature of the ministry of the Spirit of God and that he'll be able to minister beyond, you know, one location to all of God's people. I'm also thankful for the ministry of the Spirit because he ministers in such an internal and personal way. He shapes us personally. He knows how to speak to each one of our hearts. We can open up his word. We can listen to the word of God being taught. We can be in fellowship with other believers. And there will be things that the Spirit of God is just doing inside of us. So just the wonderful, not only comprehensive nature of God's Spirit, but the internal way in which the Spirit of God shapes us and molds us and changes us and grows us and empowers us for this life. And so Jesus encourages his disciples. Then he explains a facet of the Holy Spirit's ministry in verse 8. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit, when he comes, according to Jesus, is going to bring conviction. Now, conviction, as you likely know, is different than and from conversion. Conviction will be involved in the process of conversion, but conviction doesn't always lead to conversion. You know, after Jesus rose from the dead, after he ascended, the conviction really wasn't there. But after the Spirit was poured out, as you read the book of Acts, that's where you see people convicted. And some people, like the Acts 2 crowd that heard Peter's message, some people are convicted to receive the message. They were cut to the heart. They said, what must we do to be saved? In Acts 3 and 4, a different crowd, some with religious leaders, some with common people, have a dual reaction. They're all convicted. The religious leaders, by and large, reject. The crowd, by and large, receives. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen preaches a message, and the religious leaders reject but they are enraged. They are convicted. They are cut to the heart. There is conviction that has taken place, but that conviction leads to a hardening of the heart. In Acts chapter 8, Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, and that conviction led to life. He received that gospel message. So, you know, there's the reception and the rejection, but the Holy Spirit is the one ultimately who is bringing that wonderful conviction upon the world. And this would be something that the disciples would have observed in the era of the book of Acts. They would have watched the Holy Spirit working and moving, and they would have chalked so much of what occurred in the book of Acts up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus expands on this convicting ministry of God's Spirit when he says in Verse 9, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And so Jesus expounds on the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. There would be a conviction of sin in part because of a rejection of Christ. There'd be a conviction concerning righteousness because Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and demonstrated for us what true righteousness looks like. Living life like Jesus will enable you to be accepted and received by the Father. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so the judgment of Jesus on the cross for Satan and the principalities and powers of darkness. That judgment on the cross was speaking of a future judgment and would bring conviction. The Spirit would use that to bring conviction of the coming judgment in that age. Now, As we move on in verse 12, Jesus continues on and says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. So he announces to them that there's more that he'd like to speak with them, but is unable to at this particular moment. And he says, when the spirit of truth comes, verse 13, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus now begins to announce the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. He'd been talking about the conviction that the Spirit would bring. But here he talks about the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. And of course, in one sense, this is very unique to these disciples because the Holy Spirit would guide them into all the truth. We saw back in chapter 14 that he would remind them of the things that Jesus had said to them and teach them all things. So he's reiterating that same truth. He says, there's more that I'd like to tell you. I can't. When the Spirit comes, he'll guide you into the truth. He'll teach you and he will declare to you the things that are to come, the future events that would unfold. And verse 14, he will glorify me for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. One of the great things to remember about the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that his goal, his desire, his passion is to glorify Christ. He wants Jesus to receive the praise and the honor and the glory. And I mention that because I, I think many times those who chase signs and wonders, although I'm incredibly open to signs and wonders, and I Personally, I believe that signs and wonders will chase those who are chasing Jesus. And here, he's, Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me. His whole mission is to glorify Christ, not himself, not to draw attention to himself. It's Jesus that the Spirit wants us to be consumed with. And so this explains so much of the rest of the New Testament. When you read the epistles, that many of these men would be responsible for, and of course projecting out to Paul, who would become an apostle. As you think of what they wrote, you realize that they were speaking of and teaching deep and wonderful doctrine concerning Christ 
and the great riches that are found in him. They were glorifying Jesus through their writing, and that was the work of the Holy Spirit. A little while, verse 16, as Jesus moves on, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So, of course, he's speaking to them of his death, burial, and resurrection. A little while, you'll see me no longer, his death and burial. And a little while, and you will see me, his resurrection. So some of the disciples said to one another, verse 17, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So a moment of honesty there from the disciples. They're confused by the words of Jesus. Jesus knew, verse 19, that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, Jesus looks at these men and he understands that they have a difficult hour approaching in their lives. He'd already prophesied to them and told them that each one of them would deny him. They would deny his name. And of course, this is pictured for us most graphically in the life of Peter, who we'll read of in chapter 18, the denial of Christ. And it was a moment of great weakness for these men, but it was a dark moment. The one that they loved, the one that they served, that they gave their lives to. He's arrested, he's beaten, he's crucified, and he's placed within the grave. And it had to feel like such a deep and sorrowful loss for these men. You know, not just the loss of the waste of time. You know, not just not just a loss of energy and effort in the sense that they had spent all of this time and invested so much in Jesus. Not just the loss of an investment, but the loss of a friend, a leader, a companion. Now, Jesus had loved them. He had cared for them. He had blessed them in so many ways. And now he was gone. So not only was it loss of time and investment, but sorrow, grief, real true grief over the death of Jesus, their Lord, their Savior, their friend, their companion. And Jesus tells them, he says, listen, you will weep and you will lament and the world will rejoice. There will be gladness over my death, Jesus tells them. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, this, of course, for the disciples would have manifested itself in he dies, they're sorrowful, he rises from the dead, and their joy returns to them. And for us, this truth is so often the course and the flow of our lives. You know, the sorrow that comes from just living here, just being on this planet, the trials and the heartaches and the pain, death and sickness and despair and poverty and interrelational struggles and 
weakness and disease and all of that. And this world can bring us such sorrow. And Jesus would say, a little while you'll have this sorrow and you will weep and you will lament and the world might rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy, great joy. It says in Psalm 126 that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And for those of you that are serving the Lord, ministering to him, working in the church and in the body of Christ, those of you who have gone through pain and trial and agony, as you sow in tears, you will reap in joy. I don't know that it will be in this life or in the next life. But it will at least be when you meet the Lord face to face. Great and wonderful joy. Now he says to his disciples in verse 21, he gives an analogy. And he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So he looks at these men, and he says, hey, listen, you've seen a woman giving birth. Jesus, the brave preacher here, willing to talk about what it's like for a woman to have a baby. And he, you know, says, hey, you know, they, in great anguish, have the baby. But once the baby is born, for joy that a human being has been born... They forget. They no longer remember the anguish. And I think this is part of the reason why women have the babies. Because so many men would just quit after round one or never even enter into that difficulty in the first place. But with the female heart, they forget that pain and they love that child for joy that a child has been born. And Jesus said, you know, that will be the same thing. You have sorrow now, but when you see me again, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You know, when we go to meet with the Lord in heaven, the joy that we have will far surpass the agony and the pain of this life. Now, I think in one sense, there will be a little bit of a memory. I don't know how it will work, but, and I do know that every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will be completed, but we will sing eternally of the forgiveness of our sin and the necessity of the blood of Christ. There will be something that we recall. It's not just going to be blanked out of our minds, but the sorrow of this life is nothing in comparison to when we'll see and meet with the Lord, the joy that we will experience. In that day, verse 23, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now Jesus in verse 23 tells them, listen, in that day, you know, when I rise from the dead, you'll ask nothing of me. You know, he'd already alluded to the fact that they weren't asking, where are you going? And he, so he says, you know, in that day when I rise from the dead, you'll ask nothing of me. And the asking thing brings to his mind the fact that they would ask of the Father. 
And so he talks to them for just a moment about prayer. And he speaks very boldly when he says to them in verse 23, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And then he tells them, you know, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. And, you know, of course, we have to be cautious to make sure that we're not taking this out of its context. He's speaking to these disciples who are going to go out into the world. He's launching them out. More than likely, their prayer life is going to center around the mission that Jesus gave to them. And, of course, we have to remember that he says, it's whatever you ask of the Father in my name. And so these are the kinds of prayers that it's as if Jesus himself would have asked for these things. You're asking in the name of Christ. And so Jesus was a selfless prayer, always concerned with others and always concerned with the kingdom of God and, you know, not interested in his own selfish gain in any way, shape or form. So you have to put those guardrails on the promise that Jesus is making, but don't let it steal from the fact that this is an incredible promise from Christ to his disciples that when they would pray in the name of Jesus, according to the will of Jesus, the character of Christ, they would receive absolutely everything that they asked for. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now concerning a father, he goes on in verse 25 and said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the father. In that day, verse 26, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. He announces to these men, listen, if you're in me, you need to understand and know that the Father himself, he loves you. And you can go straight to him. You'll have a direct relationship with your heavenly Father. I came from the Father, verse 28, and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, verse 29, Ah, oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. So Jesus reminds them of the weakness, the incompleteness of their faith and of their belief. They had said, now we believe that you came from God. And he reminds them that the hour is coming, that they'd be scattered. As he was on the cross, it would freak these men out and they would depart. I have said these things to you, verse 33, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus offers to his disciples an internal peace peace that is in Jesus, a peace that is through tribulation and stems from his great victory. Take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the peace that is available to every believer in Christ. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, 
or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.